Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Dr. Sunil Chopra, Clinical Director and Founder of the London Dermatology Centre. Sunil, hello. Hi, Matthew. Thank you for coming on the program today. We might as well dive straight in. What does the word leader mean to you? A leader is someone who leads, um, always makes sure that the decisions that are made in an organization are made by that one, by that person. However, leadership means taking into account the opinions and the wishes of all the people around you in order to make a leadership decision. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how would you describe Uh, your personal leadership style? I would say that because we're in quite a complex um, profession in that there's a lot of stakeholders involved in the delivery of healthcare, there's the patients themselves, the people you work with, and of course your suppliers. And leadership is all about making sure you take into the account the wishes of all the people you work with and especially your patients and taking all of that into account when you make your decisions. Now, of course, one of the big issues with being a leader is being able to deal with uh, human beings who aren't always... uh, who aren't always at their best. Sometimes they are fallible. How do you handle conflict within the workplace? The best way to deal with conflict is, uh, first of all, when, when there's conflict, there is anger involved. And I always find in acute situations when people are angry, the best is actually not to make decisions in an acute way when people are very angry and only to make decisions in the cold light of day. And when people are in a position where the emotions have taken them over, leadership decisions are best made very coldly so that the acute situation should be mitigated. And then the decision made later on when everyone's calm and collected and never make a decision acutely or emotionally. Let's go back to the very beginning of your career when you first started out in the world of work. Were there any particular influences on you, whether it be an individual or a set of circumstances that formed the way that you lead today? Yes. I mean, when I first did medicine, medicine was a very old-fashioned profession. So the proportion of women was about 30%. The proportion of minorities was between 1% and 2%. The, and it did teach me when I first started that unless you have diversity in a profession like the health service, um, it can be very frustrating because you're not delivering the sort of care that should be given to the public. Luckily, and therefore I learned uh, very early on that my profession wasn't diverse enough. Um, to deliver care to the diverse population we have in London. And therefore, now the situation is quite different. More than 50% of the healthcare uh, workforce is now women, especially in the medical profession. And also the amount of minorities in senior positions has increased. 
And therefore, I think one what I've learned throughout my whole career is the more diverse um, your medical and your team, the better care you can give. For instance, um, when I was first started doing medicine, it was very difficult for people to come out as being gay, for instance. A lot of gay people would not come out or tell anyone, whereas nowadays, um, gay people proudly state, I'm gay. And that that helps with your diverse care because you do need that diversity in your team, including ethnicity, um, gender, um, and people's sexuality. You have to take into account that the diverse population you're serving requires a diverse team to deliver it. Now, of course, uh, dermatology isn't all about... Uh bumps and in uh, in marks you ha- you have a very serious uh pursuit of of skin cancer melanoma now uh the government mandates uh mandates warnings on packets of cigarettes uh they mandate warnings on alcohol uh there are constant um information campaigns about uh the usage of of sugar and uh in alcoholic units in people's diets why has the government not stepped in with warnings, cigarette-style warnings, on um, uh, tanning beds and uh, not wearing uh, the right amount of uh, protection in the sun? Do you know this is one of the biggest bugbears that dermatologists have? In Australia, where a campaign was launched by the government, um, it was called Slip slap slop or something like that where they encouraged people to wear a sunblock when they were out in the sun um, uh, the, the big deterrence against using sunblock there was a lot of public campaign and the actual incidence or uh, of skin cancer actually reduced in Australia as a result of it or really the rate of increase of the cancers reduced now also in Australia you'll find that because people have been warned of this they tend to get their cancers um, uh, early. We we tend to detect Australian tumors early because of public awareness. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the UK, even compared to Europe, we tend to have our melanomas diagnosed later because of the lack of public awareness. And I completely Mm -hmm. agree with you. Any young person I've ever made a diagnosis of a melanoma on, if if they've been under the age of 30, it's always been because they've used sunbeds. It's always been associated with the use of sunbeds, getting early melanomas in my experience. So you're very right. In fact, there should be an age cutoff limit when you can use sunbeds. Um, you should never be able to use it before under the age of a certain age. And I would say it'd be 18 or 16. But you're very right indeed. We've got a known carcinogen causing cancers, yet there's no warning or control or regulation of tanning beds at all. Now, when it comes to natural sunlight, we have to be slightly careful here because the general population in the UK has got low vitamin D. And the consequences of low vitamin D can be just as severe as overexposure to sunlight because low vitamin D is associated with a lot of internal cancers. Rickets and and that sort of thing. 
That's right. So we, well, rickets is very rare because cases of rickets happen, but osteoporosis, thin bones, and also the association with internal cancers with chronic low vitamin D. So I think our advice when it comes to natural sunlight in the country where we don't get that much of it has to be a bit more nuanced than Australia where they get so much of it. Mm-hmm. And the advice in the UK is if you do get natural sunlight to actually expose yourself for about 15 minutes without any protection and then protect yourself. So when it's sunny, you get at least 15 minutes per day in order to uh, lift up your vitamin D stores. So we have to be balanced in our advice to people when it comes to natural sunlight in the UK. And what uh, the thing I hear the most uh, from from people I speak to is they go, "Well, it's it's not warm outside. I can't get a sunburn. I can't I can't be damaged." And of course, uh, the the uh, the rays of the sun have no uh, no regard to temperature, uh, isn't that of right? Of course. In fact, one of the analogies is when people go skiing. Mm-hmm. It's very cold uh, when they go skiing. However, the snow reflects the sunlight even more. Uh, onto your body. So that's one factor that means that you get more UV despite the fact that it's cold. And the other is when you go skiing, you're on altitude. Now, say you're a thousand meters higher than sea level. Mm-hmm. Some, a lot of people assume that you'll get a thousand times the UV radiation because you've gone up a thousand meters. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that's not the case. It's a thousand to the power two. Mm-hmm. So the amount of UV exposure when it comes to altitude, say you're 10 meters high, you get 100 times more UV exposure by just being 10 meters higher. Now, of course, so you're uh, quite right. Now, of course, and melanoma is faster moving than lung cancer. Uh, with smoker, smoking rates uh, dropping off, do you think the government should pivot uh, its uh, warning abilities uh, to the dangers of skin cancer? Yes, I do. In fact, when we look about uh, look at we're, now, melanoma is caught up with cervical cancer. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the fact that we've got a multi-million-pound screening system for cervical cancer, where we have to be quite invasive in taking the cervical smear, it's quite a lot of cost involved in analysing it and then getting back to the patient. With melanoma, all you have to do is train the general practitioner to look at the skin. That's all you have to do. You don't have to spend that many resources. A 15-minute session with your GP looking at all of your moles will be sufficient once a year to reduce the death rate. It wouldn't even cost as much as cervical cancer screening, and it would be just as effective. Now, Sunil, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for London Dermatology Center? Well, you talked about skin cancer. We've now got a uh, mole mapping system whereby we now photograph our patients' bodies and photograph each mole and bring them in every year um, to re-photograph the mole to detect any changes. Mm-hmm. So we've launched that program for the London Dermatology Center because the earlier you get a melanoma, the more curative it is. And in the next 12 months, we're also 
have a cream that we've invented for non-melanoma skin cancer that we're hoping to develop further so that people won't need operations when they have non-melanoma skin cancers like basal cell carcinomas, you can just use a cream instead. So we'll be working to take that to trial. Well, Sunil, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you and these important issues. I very much hope that you come back on the program at some point in the near future. Sunil, thank you. Thank you very much, Matthew. That was Dr. Sunil Chopra, Clinical Director and Founder of the London Dermatology Centre. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. We're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, yeah. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and a manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, that calibre, can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the talent of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with the, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters. 
who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Moore. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously... Uh, after uh, or at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about South Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand. Whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you, it can have a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict. But at times, you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, South so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising they were not. 
there was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of a group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before I was I was playing. And I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games, before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, and Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games. And I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay, he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, Jeff, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot, and it's there, and people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> But the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? 
And of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions, and then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make me laugh again, if, you put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when this happened when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you or did you just realise that by, by one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of the uh, fans of, of West Ham and, uh, and Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch, is people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely, probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah, and and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you 
as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely... Mm. You've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen. And I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's absolutely astonishing. Astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, well, the, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at that, so many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and, uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath, and there was nobody. And I'm going back from an earlier earlier question for me. That um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish. After '66, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. 
and I wouldn't and when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding, and I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was, and I've said that many many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. It, we had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. Showed. The word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly. Uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single mind and single mind and dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time it's a huge part of your life I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level you may you know have a, have a couple of weeks holiday but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm I'm sure there's not uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation, and I think that's you completely focus. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland its parent company, or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.